But why don't we get started, everyone? So, it was just another normal spring day in 1986 at Quigley Prep, this small, all-boys high school that I attended in Chicago. And having just taken our ACTs, we were all talking about the future, right? And so at one point, Tony Brandeis turns to me and says, Bolt, what do you think you want to do with your life? And I thought for a second, and I turned to Tony and I said, I'm not exactly sure, but I think I want to do something where I get to write. And Tony paused for a second and turned to me with a face of definitive smug on it. And he said to me, writers are a dime a dozen, and you will never make any money, and you will never go anywhere. And for a moment, the foundations of my very world shook. And you have to understand the difference between Tony Brandeis and me. Okay, so Tony Brandeis was the jock at my high school. He played football, well actually he did play football, he played basketball, he played baseball, he was tall, broad-shouldered, good-looking, confident, popular, and would have been prom king if there was such a thing as a prom at an all-boys high school, right? <laughs> and in contrast, you had me. I was short, at that time morbidly obese, so people imagine I had a 46-inch waist in high school, because it's true. I had the name Voltaire, and I was Asian, and I couldn't dunk. I basically had absolutely no skills that were of any value in an all-boys high school, but I could write a complete sentence. And I just thought to myself for a second, what do I do now? And so I thought, I gained my bearings, and I looked up at Tony at his chiseled chin and into his possible blue eyes, and I said the only thing that was possible to say when you were confronted by the immovable force of an all-American jock telling you that you had no future. I looked up at Tony and I said, well, shit. <laughs> so flash forward 30 years. Um, I spent 10 years doing development and alumni relations before getting my MBA and starting a consulting firm. And I'll tell you what, I have written every single day of my professional life. And so while my title does not say uh, writer, I am very much a writer. And every day of my professional life, I have leaned on relationships and have built relationships. And so even though my title does not say relationship builder or relationship steward, I am very much a relationship builder. And I lean every day on the power of storytelling. And it might be just an anecdote that I share with friends. It might be something that I use to try and illustrate a point with a client or try to teach a concept to a team member. But every day, I lean on stories. And so even though my title doesn't say storyteller, I'm very much a storyteller. And so it is with all of you in this room. You are all writers, you are all communicators, you are all relationship builders, and you are all storytellers. And in the next 35 minutes that I have left of your attention, what I'd really like to do is help you to embrace that a little bit more and maybe find even more of your voice as a storyteller. Now, I'm going to warn you, I've got a lot of stuff to cover today. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about why story matters in the, 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 in it at all, why it's so important to us. I want to talk about 
the donor and alumni journey, and I want to share some research that we have done over the years. I want to talk about how that impacts the way we craft our narratives for donors and alumni. I want to talk very specifically, because I promised to do so in the description, about what the components are of the digital story and the life cycle of a digital story, and how it is that the digital story is just a little bit different of an animal from a written story. I want to share three lessons that I've learned over the years uh, doing communications work and then give you time for questions and answers. Does that sound fair? Cool? All right. So as I mentioned just a second ago, my goal is to give you new tools to frame, tell, and evaluate your institutional storytelling efforts. And I think that any good conversation about anything starts with the why. And for us, you know, for most of us, I think we know inherently that stories are absolutely fantastic for entertainment, right? We, we value our time on the couch at the end of a very, very long day we are where we are watching stories go on the screen. But the fact of the matter is that story has been with us as mankind even before we had verbal and written language. Before we could talk with each other, we had pictures to tell each other stories. And stories are actually hardwired into us. Or actually, better put, we are hardwired for stories. And the role of story is many and varied. Stories can teach. Stories can help us to solve problems. Stories provide pattern and order. They obviously entertain. They help connect us. They serve a sociological function, and they help us to assimilate into cultures. And finally, they help us to impart traditions. So I want to share a couple of really awesome quotes with you. The first is from Jonathan Gottschall, and he wrote this really fascinating book called The Storytelling Animal. And what I love about this book is that he goes beyond the idea of stories for entertainment. And he talks about the fact that stories affect us psychologically, sociologically, even neurobiologically. And he says in his quote, story, however it's delivered, teaches us facts about the world, it influences our moral logic, it marks us with fears, hopes, and anxieties that alter our behavior, and it perhaps even alters our personality. Steven Pinker, said something along the same lines. He said, stories equip us with a mental file of dilemmas we might someday face, along with workable solutions. So one of the things he talked about is the fact that stories, for us as individual people, have a problem-solving component to them. Basically, we imagine different scenarios in our lives and then solve the problems in our heads. And that is one way for us to become more highly functional individuals. By creating these scenarios, storing these solutions, and then drawing on them when we need them. Carmine Gallo wrote a book called The Storyteller's Secret, and he says, a thought triggers the same regions of the brain that would be activated if you were experiencing this in real life. Imagine for a second what that means. If you are watching something and you are absolutely engaged in it, it triggers the same regions of the brain as if you were experiencing this in real life. So in a very true way, when you are watching something or when you are listening to something, vicariously, you are living out to a certain extent that same experience. And then finally, one of my favorite quotes comes from Paul Zak, a neuroscientist, and he said, a compelling story with an emotional trigger alters our brain chemistry, making us more trusting, understanding, and open to ideas. Now, Paul Zak, he did this really fun experiment. 
what he did is he uh, hardwired, or he took all these electrodes and he strapped them to people watching a James Bond movie, right? And he saw what happened to them uh, neurobiologically as the movie progressed. And it turns out that your brain, or the, the brain functions, were really mimicking what would happen if people were actually running in real life, if people were actually fighting in real life. There's that shot of adrenaline that happens when James Bond kills the villain, right? So it's, it's actually proven physiologically that our bodies react to story as if we are actually experiencing that. And that is something that's really important for us to realize, to understand, and embrace as storytellers the idea that story has a much more profound effect on us than simply capturing our attention. It actually changes the way we feel. It changes the way we think. It changes our actual body chemistry. And that's the backdrop upon which I would like to tell you what I think makes a great story. So Aristotle once said that the art of persuasion depends on ethos, which is basically, in, in modern English, how credible are you? Logos, which is how well thought out is your argument? And finally, ethos, how trustworthy are you? How much of an emotional connection will people form with you? Now, we can boil this down to basically three words, head and heart, okay? Head and heart. The idea is that a good story engages us with logic but it also touches us in an emotional way. So good stories, the best stories, have a component of head and heart to them. Now, Aristotle had a lot to say about stories. And according to him, there are five different parts to a story. There's the exposition, there's the complication, there's the crisis, there's the climax, and there's the resolution. I personally prefer Pixar's version. Once upon a time, one day, because of that, and because of that, until final. Anyone a Glee fan here? Come on, it's okay, it's all right. Come on. <laughs> Thank you very much. So let's mash this up for a little bit, right? Because Pixar and Aristotle really kind of belong together, like peanut butter and bananas. So exposition. Once upon a time, the beginning of every story and at the beginning of every story, we establish a setting, a time and a place. We establish the characters and the backstory that drives them. And then we establish a theme and plot. Now, I'll have a little bit more to say about theme and plot in just a little bit. How many people have seen or read the book Gone with the Wind? All right, this is so good. I've got to tell you, I asked this question at a conference like two weeks ago, and they're like, what? <laughs> this is really cool. All right. So the first sentence in the book, um, which is a beautiful first sentence, is Scarlett O'Hara was not a beautiful woman. You see that come to life in the first sweeping uh, scenes of the movie. The book goes on to say, but men seldom realized it when they were as captivated by her charms as the Tarleton twins were. And so in the opening of uh, Margaret Mitchell's Gone with the Wind, she establishes this incredible sort of group of characters, this backstory, this backdrop upon which an epic romance transformation and, and character development happen. 
So the second part of the story is really the point at which once upon a time takes a little bit of a turn. There's this complication. So one day, and normally the reason that this complication happens is because someone wants something that they can't get, right? And that equals conflict. My favorite example of this, the Little Mermaid, right? She falls in love with this really handsome prince, small problem, he eats fish. And she's technically half one. I love the fact that Disney skirts all of the issues involved around like interspecies marriage here. But, right? I mean, honestly, they live happily ever after and they keep on eating lobsters because it's what they do. All I'm saying. Okay, so here is the complication. She falls in love with someone that she is going to have a hard time getting. And that leads to the crisis because of that. And in crisis, in the best sorts of stories, we have this sort of progression. We have good, then bad, then good, then bad. There's, a, there's you know, baby steps forward, baby steps backwards. And that develops this really great dynamic tension that keeps us engaged in the story and builds our allegiances to the protagonists, right? And makes us even more and more mad at the antagonists. So Dorothy was having a really bad day. She was not planning on taking her house for a ride in a tornado. So small problem, she drops her house on the Wicked Witch of the East. But then the good news is she meets Glinda, who floats in in a bubble and tells Dorothy that she's now in the land of the munchkins. Now, I've got to confess, I'm not sure that Glinda was really good news. Is anyone with me? Anyone? I mean, she floats in, she says hello to Dorothy, she puts a pair of Manolo Blahniks that Dorothy probably finds very, very tight on her feet, and then says, oh, and by the way, the Wicked Witch of the West wants them, and she's going to have to kill you to get them. And then she floats away in the bubble. What's wrong with this picture? As far as I'm concerned, she was not a fairy godmother. All right, so here's where the tension builds. So we find out that the Wicked Witch of the West needs to kill Dorothy, and it's pretty much up to the task. That's the bad news. The good news is Dorothy makes friends. Um, the Scarecrow, the, the Cowardly Lion, and the Tin Man. The good news is that they set out on adventures together. The bad news is they almost die in a field of poisoned poppies. And good, bad, good, bad until the bucket arrives. And then Glenda comes back after all, everything is done. And what does Glenda say? Click your heels three times and you can go home. And I'm watching this and I'm thinking, you couldn't have told her that earlier? But then there wouldn't have been a story, right? That's where the dynamic tension comes in. So the fourth part of a good story is the climax. And because of that, and this is the big crescendo. Nothing is big as when Luke Skywalker finds out that the person that he has been trying to murder is his father. That happened to me last week, too. Sorry, spoiler alert. Until, <laughs> resolution, until finally. Because all stories need an ending, not necessarily a happy ending, but an ending, a resolution, and a lesson learned. This is another spoiler alert. I'm hoping that everyone's watched Harry Potter. If not, hate to tell you this, he lives. <laughs> All right, so I've shown you a lot of great fiction in terms of storytelling. 
maybe you're wondering, what does this have to do with education? And I would say that great stories for education follow the same principles of great storytelling theory. That you can find the same sorts of one day up, yeah, once upon a time until one day, and because of that, and because of that, all great stories, whether they be fiction or nonfiction or education, all of them have those components. And in fact, the truer the story, the better the story. So we, as storytellers, face this dynamic tension. Because as communicators, we want to tell stories that no one else has ever told before, right? We want to tell stories that no one else has discovered in a way that no one has ever thought to tell a story. But the fact of the matter is that we as human beings are wired for pattern. And maybe one of the freeing, most freeing things I can share with you today is the fact that through time, through culture, through all sorts of eras, there are basically seven plots and seven themes that govern all stories ever told. How cool is that? I love that. So let's talk about those popular themes. They are fate, great example is Troy, ambition, great expectations, sacrifice, the gift of the Magi. Are you all familiar with that story of the gift of the Magi? All right, very cool, then I won't tell it. Transformation, share. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Love, the Gospels. Vengeance, Terry Underwood song before he cheats. <laughs> Resurrection, Terminator. And when we talk about popular plots, we talk about overcoming the monster. Harry Potter is a great example. Rags to riches, Cinderella. What I find fascinating about Cinderella is there is a version of Cinderella for every single ancient culture that has ever existed. Cultures that have no relation whatsoever, no sort of geographical ties whatsoever. And you can find that Cinderella story in all of these cultures. The Quest, which is Lord of the Rings, Voyage and Return, The Wizard of Oz, Comedy, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Tragedy, Macbeth, Rebirth, Beauty and the Beast. Now, for all of those of you who are scribbling, scribbling furiously, we do have the slides for you. They are totally legible, I promise. So um, if you miss anything, you'll get the slides at the end of this. And four things about all stories. They are simple, easy to understand, best written in the language of the people that you are telling the story to, and as a result, memorable. Secondly, they're engaging. They are illustrated, unexpected, and emotional. They're authentic, meaning that they have resonance, they are truthful and purposeful, and then finally they are motivated. Good stories foster connection, foster exploration, and encourage action. So this is where I want to share a little bit of research with you. Uh, we did a project with the University of Buffalo about five, six years ago where we sat down with a number of active supporters and prideful belongers, basically alumni and donors. And what we wanted to do was get a sense of what their journey was like. You know, how it is that they formed and maintained relationships with institutions, because that's very much a lot of what we do here, right? We try and find ways to build those relationships between our audiences and the institution that we love. And 
the reason I want to share this with you is because as far as I'm concerned, in order to serve your audience as well in your storytelling capacity, you need to understand them in a meaningful way. So Indy Young calls this practical empathy. Empathy is about understanding, about what's going on, again, head and heart, and acknowledging her reasoning or his reasoning and emotions are valid even when they differ for your own. And this is where I introduce the illegible slide. <laughs> All right, so this is an experience map. This is a visual representation of all qualitative and quantitative research we did with the University of Buffalo. Uh, normally an experience map is meant to be printed out and span an entire wall. It's meant to be bigger than life size. And I'm just gonna call a few things out for you here and then I'll show you some details of this. And again, I have high res or actually Mallory, Mallory, we just, there we go. Mallory can hook you guys up with that high res stuff. But what we found in our research is that the alumni and donors basically have four stages in their relationship with an institution. And these are the, the main things that you see up top. Uh, understand and explore, engage and invest, lead and inspire, and reflect and recommit. Now, one of the interesting things I found in the research is that donors actually go back and forth among these stages. So they will have moments or periods of time with an institution where they're just in the exploration stage. They're learning, they're appreciating, uh, and then they, they become more involved. They might take a leadership position, and then they might dial back for a little bit and just take a pause or take a breather. So what we found is that alumni and donors can actually go back and forth among these stages across an entire lifetime in a relationship with, a donor, or with an institution. So let me give you the key findings for each of these areas. Explore and enjoy. So uh, an experience map talks about thoughts, feelings, actions, trusted resources, and opportunities. The thoughts that people have when they're just getting familiar with an institution are along the lines of why do I belong here? Uh, why am I doing this? What sort of impact can I make? What sort of commitment am I willing to undertake? Do the people in this organization share my priorities? And is this or quote unquote for real? Trusted resources include websites, web searches, and personal interactions. And feelings really run the gamut. People feel invested. People feel enjoyment and pride, gratitude and happiness. And their actions at this point are fairly exploratory. So if you take a look at the right-hand corner, up top, you'll see searching the web, reviewing outcomes, looking at organizational sites, meeting other supporters, and engaging in social media. As someone progresses in that relationship, they become more engaged and more invested. And at this point, they're thinking, I want to stay connected. I think that this is a good, a good investment of my time, and I realize that my involvement in this organization has changed me for the better, and it has benefited me and I want to promote the organization actively. Feelings could include excitement, apprehension, hoping that they fit in as they get more involved, a sense of empowerment and acceptance. And here's where people start diving into more resources. So annual reports, magazines and publications, newsletters, email communications, online communities, and here's where they start to engage, right? So they subscribe, they begin to give, they build relationships, they become a member, they attended events, and their, their work in social or their activities in social flip. 
So in the first stage, what they're doing is sort of just benchmarking and, and listening. Here they begin to advocate via social for your organization. And then finally, they participate in online communities in a more involved way. Now, our hope is that all of our donors and our alumni get to a stage where they want to be inspired, right? Where they go from being uh, people in the alumni base to uh, advocates and ambassadors for our institutions. And people who ascend to this feel like they're ready to step up in the organization. They've got a lot of great ideas. They think about extending reach and influence. And they want to be able to make sure that other people have the same level of experience that they have. Feelings include thrill, urgency, accomplishment, a sense of efficacy, and possibly a sense of pressure to get more involved. And trusted sources for information include conversations, <laughs> events, organization, and specific news sources for the industry. What I found with leadership, uh, people in this space, is they actually begin to read newspapers and magazines specific to what they're involved with because they want to broaden their knowledge and their understanding, which is a really significant investment of their time. And then finally, actions include those online communities, in recruiting family and friends, volunteering, taking a leadership position, accepting or uh, becoming a public spokesperson, and then benchmarking the organization's progress. The final stage that we found in our research is the stage of reflect and recommit. And actually, this is one of those meta stages that people go through at the end of being in leadership for a while, but they also go through this as they go from uh, understand and enjoy to um, engage. So even as they're progressing in their involvement, they go through this sort of benchmarking process internally where they're asking, is this really where I want to invest my time? Am I having the impact that I want to have? There's a sense of ambivalence and appreciation. Not sure I want to continue doing this, but I appreciate everything the organization has done for me. Uh, possibly a sense of hurt. We had a number of interviews where we found that people who became involved with institutions at a certain point felt slighted. And it could be something as they weren't acknowledged in the way they wanted to be acknowledged, or um, they were passed over for a leadership position in a volunteer organization. So it's really incredible to see how those small things, those small interactions actually have a big impact on the emotional, well, emotional state of engagement that people have. And the opportunities we identified in this stage are to affirm that person's individual value, learn more about their goals and priorities, and encourage ongoing and increased involvement. So those were the four stages that make this up. And the reason that I wanted to show this to you is because I think that when you understand the journey, you can then craft stories that are better suited to supporting that journey. So, we all do alumni profiles, right? And they're all these, and I don't mean to mock uh, because I've written these myself, but we know what the alumni profiles look like. Oh, I'm so glad I came here. This place has changed my life completely and I had all of these leadership opportunities and it's totally expanded my horizon and now I'm really excited to go out and change the world, right? That's pretty much what a young alumni profile looks like. And an older profile alumni looks like, this place changed my life and taught me how to think, and as a result, set me on a lifelong career. And all the best experiences that I ever had in my life were actually the four years that I went to college at X, right? 
So we know what it's typically like, but when we understand that people go through a progression in their relationship with an institution, that gives us the opportunity to begin to craft our stories around where they are in that relationship in order to support that journey in a more real and authentic way. So let's talk about how that happens. How does one craft that narrative? So I have a story to tell you about when I was doing development. Uh, I was working once for a microeconomic development firm uh, offering microloans to the poor, basically $20, $30 loans, uh, mostly to women in third world nations that would allow them to set up their own businesses and pull themselves and their family out of poverty as a result. And I was working with a major donor who had invested heavily in Latin America. And uh, I had done a very simple thing back then. It, it was basically, I took a map, I painted the, uh, the areas where his investment was made, and I found three stories of people who, whose lives had been helped, three business stories to tell. And I posted this on a, a private webpage for him. And I get a call from him one day. Now, those of you who have done major gifts, I don't know if you feel the same way, but every time a major donor calls me, I get just a little nervous because they never really call to say, hello, right? It's not like they ever want to just shoot the breeze with you. So I thought, all right, what have I done now? And um, what he said was, I'm really grateful that you did this because not only do I know where my money is going, but I want you to know that my wife and I are turning the reins of our foundation over to our children. And I want them to be as invested in this as I am. And uh, this helps us to share that, these stories with them. And that's when I had this insight. The most important stories are the ones that alumni and donors tell themselves and those around them. Now, I interpret that a couple of ways. There are actually two ways to interpret that. The first is the most important stories are the ones that alumni and donors tell themselves about themselves and about those around them. And then finally, the most important stories are the ones that alumni and donors tell to themselves and to those around them. And the insight I gained from that is simply that you must put your readers, you must your readers, put your readers at the heart of the stories that you tell. They are your heroes. Your institution is not the hero of your story. And so some opportunities for y'all, go deeper. All gifts make a difference, all memberships have their privileges, all organizations make some sort of impact. The details are what make the story your story. Secondly, use stories to illustrate and explain. Stats are great to educate and inform, but the story brings life and reality to a situation. Thirdly, remember again that the hero of your story is not your organization. Place your readers at the heart of the story, and finally, Nurture your reader's own inner storytelling. Remember that the most important ones are the ones that they tell themselves and those around them. The more you can empower them to tell their story, to be that, the advocate for you, the better off you are. So let's take a look at a couple of examples and explore and enjoy. I pulled this quote for, from Josh uh, Foladare. We learned that people gave most to areas they could attach themselves to and things they could see themselves doing, needing, or creating. One site that I think is absolutely fantastic at putting the audience at the heart of the story 
is MIT's or uh, the Michigan's Alumni Association. Normally, you get to an alumni association site, and what you see is our alumni association exists to blah 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 and blah. Right, the three reasons that the alumni association exists. What Michigan does is every single panel of the homepage is about you. So the, the opening panel is about people for whom Michigan might not be local, but is still very close to heart. And when you look at this, wherever life takes you, you are never far away. So the page is not about the alumni association. The page is about you as an alum and why this matters. Another great example, Boston Magazine, um, in fact, Boston University, Bostonia Magazine, they do an incredible job of storytelling on every single alumni issue that they do. Now, I got the chance to talk with the editor-in-chief of the alumni magazine, so if any of you guys want the dirt on how long it takes to convert a single story from a written narrative to a digital story, I can tell you exactly what that investment is. But go check out Bostonia. They do a beautiful job of telling stories that engage and inspire. And speaking of engagement, a couple of examples. First, I want to share this quote from someone who works at Evertrue. Jenna Buckle said that research reveals that alumni who have liked content on an institution's page are 92% more likely to give. Millennials are 115% more likely to give. If you take a look at MIT's Better World site, their capital campaign, they do a beautiful job of curating entries from alumni around this. And then if you look at University of Texas, they have this page called Advocate for UT, where they give very concrete ways that you can become politically engaged and involved on behalf of the university. Leading and inspiring, that third phase that I talked about. Anyone here from Purdue? Anyone from Purdue? Awesome stuff, you guys. I love this, this, this day of giving. Absolutely beautiful, the infographics, the, the, the way that you told the story about how many people got engaged, beautiful photographs. So Purdue's some, doing some really awesome storytelling on their site. So thumbs up. Thank you for giving me a good example to use. And um, Drexel does a really wonderful job. You're from Drexel? Awesome. I love this, this philanthropy journal. Every year they put out a philanthropy journal that has a mix of stats and individual stories really highlights the people who take on leadership positions on behalf of Drexel. It is a beautiful recognition piece. And then finally, reflect and recommit. Steve Wynn, Hotel Mobile, once said that the strongest force in the universe is self-esteem. If you can make people feel good about themselves, they will love you for it, they will be loyal to, to you. Here's one example from the campaign from Berkeley. It was a great way for them to celebrate the end of the campaign and at the same time say, oh, no, 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 don't stop giving yet. And that's typically what happens at the end of a capital campaign, right? People feel like this is a natural pause. I've given a good deal, maybe more than I normally do, so now it's time for me to back off. But Berkeley does a beautiful job of saying, you guys, with your help, we did it, but we aren't done. And Harvard School of Engineering and Applied Sciences does a great job with Catch the Next Wave. Uh, also setting the stage for more giving. So I've got tons more examples of really great storytelling that I just didn't have the time to cover. Uh, if you tweet me or if you email me uh, at the end of this, I'll make sure that I share more of those with you. So I promised in my 
description that I would tell you a little bit about what makes a story a digital story. Here's the difference, I think, and it's summed up by Paul Berry, who now runs Rebel Mouse but used to work for the Huffington Post. Far too often, writers and editors think that the story is done when they hit publish. At the Huffington Post, the article begins its life when you hit publish. Now, for someone who began his work in print magazines for alumni back in 1991, this was a huge change, right? Because normally, we finish a publication and we think, Oh, thank God. Now we have three more weeks before we have to get back to the editorial calendar, and we are just like sick of that story by the time we're done, right? We're like, it's gone to press. I can finally forget about that story. But the biggest difference I find with digital stories is that the life cycle of a digital story really has its inception in publishing. And so if you think that you're done with that story, when that story has run or gone on your website, then you should think again. And the five components that a digital story has at its disposal are number one, really great visual design, number two, structured content, number three, integrated media, number four, engagement opportunities, and number five, technical infrastructure. So when you're telling visual, when you're telling uh, digital stories, you're leaning on design that really encourages reading. This is also a change from the early days of the web, right? How many of us grew up with the web thinking people skin? Right? Oh, come on. Have none of you taken my writing for the web workshop? People skim, use blocks of colors, use bulleted and numbered lists. Does this sound familiar? And that was the way that people would interact in the past. But the fact is that as time has gone on, people are now more interested and invested in engaging with a story in a deep way online. And part of doing that is creating a visual interface that allows people to actually read content. So that means more white space, that means better topography, it means that no type on your site should be less than 16 points. And then we have structured content, another way that a digital story is different. The idea with structured content is that your story is chunked, right? It's not just one long narrative. It's a narrative, it's a title, it's a subtitle, it may be two different types of descriptions, five different photographs, three or four videos, an infographic, all of which can stand alone as a way to promote your digital story through social. So what you want is to be able to take your stories and find chunks that you can share, and you want to be able to tag your content so that as you amass your stories over time, you know what stories are relevant to specific topics, and you can then begin to aggregate those on your site. We've talked about integrated media already, but that includes photography, video, audio, data visualization. Engagement opportunities means basically calls to action, and that could be anything from commenting to sharing and amplifying through social media, the options to sign up for updates to stories for mobile push alerts, and options to subscribe. And then finally, technology. A digital story needs to have the proper technology undergirding it. That means content management systems. That means cloud-based collaboration tools for workflow. The ability to experiment with different types of headlines. So in, in general parlance, that means A-B testing. And then finally, an analytics framework, a way to track 
not only how many page views you have and how long they're staying on the page, but also tracking all of the stuff that you're pushing out through social. Those quotes, those videos, those infographics. And so the life cycle of a digital story looks something like this. There are six stages. Strategize, create, publish, promote, assess, and curate. I have a little bit more to say about strategy, in, and I swear I'm almost to the end of my slides, I promise. One quote from David Carr, who uh, was with the New York Times before he passed on, in digital media, technology is not a wingman, it is the man. How something is made is often as important as what is made. So let me end this with three lessons learned, and then I'll open this up to questions. First lesson that I've learned doing communications through the years is you and your institutions are not the heroes of your story. I've said this before, but I'm saying it again because I think it's really important. And it took me a very long time to get my head around this. Andrew Stanton uh, was uh, one of the brainchild or the, the masters behind story, uh, Toy Story. And he said, the greatest storytelling commandment is make me care. This goes back to this idea of branding. A lot of times when we talk about branding, we focus upon uh, what we do or why we're important. And the fact of the matter is that what we need to do in good branding is switch from attribute to benefit. So it's not so much who we are and what we offer, but why does it matter? The second lesson is no conflict or tension, no story. I get a lot of people asking me, well, what happens if there's no real tension or there's no real conflict internal and external? And I say, that's a profile. And that's fine. It can be a profile. But unless you have some sort of tension, it really is just a snapshot. Conflict is a story's oxygen. And then finally, and I love this lesson most, story first, department second. Story first, department second. Alumni and development are one of the best sources of stories for any institution. But you're not the only one. There's also admissions. There's also student life. There's also faculty members. And when I talk with people about uh, storytelling, a lot of times people say, we just don't have the resources. And the reality is that you have the resources. You just don't have them in your department, right? And one of the best ways to become better storytellers is to find those subject matter experts, those technical experts, the videographers who are in a different department, the photographers across campus, the writers uh, and the editors, the uh, analytics um, mavens, and pulling them all together at the start of a storytelling project and planning things out, out together. So the final quote I'll leave you with is my own. Uh, in this world of digital storytelling, what I found is most important is that the best stories are the ones that we learn to tell together. So quick thanks to my storytelling team back at M. Stoner. And let's take some questions. Callaway, would you mind walking around? All right, anyone have a question? Oh, great. Shifting the hero from really the institution towards the person. Are you changing more about the questions that you're asking when you're trying to get information on the story or just flipping the perspective? You're doing both. I say I would say that you are flipping the perspective. So it's not about how great our institution is, but having someone talk about their experience. The second thing that I find 
uh, is really helpful is asking for a specific experience. So a lot of times we talk in generalities, and because we talk in generalities, we sound like we are spouting platitudes. So the best stories that we find are very specific stories about an individual experience that they had that they can elucidate or really illuminate. So that's, that's what I was Other questions? Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting question. I had this question from an art school in um, in Manhattan recently, and I said, a lot of times you can find the tension in the backstory. So, if you were, for instance, if you are focusing on alumni who's done an alumnus who's done some great work, released uh, some new art, or done a movie, sometimes the, the tension is what it took to produce that, or what what happened during production. So I would say that one of the ways that you can look for tension and conflict is to see what's happening in the backstory, or sometimes the conflict can be internal. And it can be uh, an issue of talking about, you're featuring a specific speaker in an event, talking about what that internal conflict might be. But um, but if you have, if you don't mind, uh, you can grab my business card and tell me a little bit more about some specific events and I can give you some of my ideas. Cool. All right. Oh, one more question right back there, please. Hi. I love the idea of storytelling, obviously, annual giving and all their relations. That's what we do. However, the reality is, is that we also work with deans who, at the end of the day, they want you to push stats. They want to push out admissions rates. They want to push out graduation rates. So how do you recommend um, when a story is presented to those above leadership, when they say, well, no, we just want to push it back to statistics because that's what our alumni want to hear. How do you recommend you know, pushing the story back? Well, I would say two things. The first thing is there is some research out there that you can point to that talks about the specificity of the story and how individual stories actually have more resonance with people. They tend to remember them better. They tend to affiliate more. But the second thing is I go back to that head and heart thing. So in the best possible set of stories, um, what you've got are the statistics that illustrate scope, but the individual story that illustrates heart. And if you can combine the statistics, hopefully through something like a really nice infographic that allows people to digest that really quickly, but then tell an individual story that is relevant to what you're trying to share, then you've got the best of both worlds. Um, but I would say with deans, and I know they can be a little prickly, but sharing the research, about stories and then giving them a both and rather than having them have to choose. All right, everyone, I promise I finished 12 to 5. Have a great lunch. Thank you for coming.